Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The Army's biggest IT modernization priority is simplifying its networks. Just 18 months ago, the service had 42 count them, networks. That's now down to 14, and the goal is to collapse those down to a single unified network. Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis got more from NETCOM's commander, Major General Chris Eubank. I think it's ambitious, but I think it's possible. I absolutely think it's the right thing to do, and, and actually I think it makes us a more capable workforce or Army. So I'll say that up front. The process. So it starts with what we call discovery. So finding out you actually have your own network. We come to visit you. We sit down. We have a conversation. Hey, how big is it? What's it do? That's called discovery. And then from there, we start a round of meetings and figure out what it's going to take to move you onto our network. So as we collapse an organizational network, all we do is take those users and put you in the bigger army network. And so it's not like you don't you walk away and don't have a network or services. We just put you in the bigger army network. And so that's kind of how the process works, all driven by senior leaders in the army saying, "Hey, we need to move to a unified network." They wrote an order probably about 2 years ago now that saying, "Hey, this is what we're going to do." And oh, by the way, our cyber and netcom are going to be the lead organization for this. And so over the last 2 years Two and a half years, we've been talking with every every organization in the Army and asking them, hey, do you run your own network? No. Okay, so you're using our services. Okay, good. Yes, we have our own network. Okay, what's it consist of? How many people? How many users? And then we slowly but surely migrate you to the bigger Army network, and then you get out of that business, right? And you become a customer, and, and then you get to hold NETCOM and our cyber, Army Cyber Command, accountable for delivering IT services to you. And what is it going to take in terms of the timeline and resources, everything, to collapse it? Yeah, so our goal is to have a unified network by about 2027. So if you, if you look in fiscal years, we're probably about three years out. At least that's our goal. But every time we sit down with a, a partner... We learn something new about a network, and we go, okay, now it's going to take a little bit longer. Or, hey, look at this. We can actually speed up here. So, But the goal is over the next three years is to collapse the last 14. I think the, uh, the Army's put the resources in place to do this, and so it's just it's now it's, it's about time. And what are some of the priorities for 2024 when it comes to the effort? So right now, our priorities for Ordnet Convergence are still focused on the Army National Guard and the Army Reserves. And then Army Material Command, we have some networks there we need to, to finish up. And then we just started discussions with the Corps of Engineers, the Army Corps of Engineers. So those would be the big big four the, the, next, the next year. And so we are continuing to push on this effort. There's an entire team inside NETCOM that meets with these partner organizations to make sure we understand their environment and we do it right what we don't want to do is converge you and then figure out we've broken a bunch of stuff and so and and with people like army material command the corps of engineers they have a lot of unique things and so we just got to make sure we don't break those things as we converge the networks you mentioned the pilot could you elaborate on it and talk more about what challenges you're working through 
Yeah, so what we're doing is in partnership with the 7th Infantry Division at Joint Base Lewis-McChord, we've gone out there and, and had some meetings, and in February we're going to go out as part of their exercise. And, and the goal is, so right now in the Army, when you go to the field, you deploy, you have a it's another organizational network. It's an entire separate network that we call the tactical network. And so kind of managed by the the tactical organization so managed by the seventh infantry division separate from the greater army network and so what we're doing with them is we're nipper and sipper we're looking at their environments and determining how we put them in what we'll call enterprise army space and then see if see if they can still get to all the data they need to and all the resources they need to and if they can We'll be able to go back to Army senior leaders and say that's just another organizational network that we don't need in the Army. So it's going to be interesting in February when we test this out. So that's the the goal is to prove that that network, that organizational network, like other organizational networks, can be collapsed into the greater Army network. That's the whole goal there. Why is that important about the organizational collapse? So this is about getting to the Army Unified Network. So there's a whole group of things that make it really important. So by having one unified network, you argue that there's less attack surface. Although it's big, you have less places that the adversary can attack you. It One will argue that it makes collaboration more seamless and effective. And so... The goal is everybody is on the same network. There's one organization delivering those services to the Army in general, and the tactical network is a part of that. So it's about getting to that unified network for the Army. How big is it? How many people are testing this out? Yeah, so the current test from a tactical network perspective is just the 7th Entry Division, and we are we are working with their G6 to get a sampling of systems from the division headquarters as well as some subordinate organizations like a brigade or battalion so that we have a good mix from kind of down at the battalion level all the way to the division headquarters. And so I don't have specific numbers on that. We are still working through what that looks like. And we're really letting the 7th Infantry Division drive that versus us saying, hey, give us 42 users. It's, hey, tell us the systems that you think are best for this pilot in this test. And so that, that's why the partnership is essential with the 7th Infantry, Infantry Division. And I just wanted to follow up on something you were talking about, you know, using Max, and you're testing that out. You're talking about a playbook. Do you have a timeline on that playbook? Our goal is to deliver that playbook within the next year. And so the our customers will tell you the faster the better. A lot of people want, to, want the ability to use Apple products on the network in a secure manner. So most of our customers will tell us to move a little bit faster but the goal is to deliver that playbook over the next year what would be the timeline for service members actually if they want to use a mac they could again nobody's shown up yet and said hey we want to convert our entire environment to uh to apple we've had some onesies and twosies actually reach out and now i have to go back into senior leaders in the army and ask them if we're cleared to kind of bring ones and twos onto the network based on what we know. But we're still working through some what I'll call bugs. This is the first time we've done it. And so if you're an Apple user at home, you'll be okay. If you're not and you just want to try it out, it's going to be interesting. And so we hope in the next, even even without a, a finalized playbook, we hope in the next 
six months, we can actually tell people they can start bringing Apple products in and, and we'll get them connected. Thank you. Thank you. Army NETCOM Commander Major General Chris Eubank speaking with Federal News Network's Anastasia Ovis. Check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. And also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. 
And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me back because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, 
I realized that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going? Um, Because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role, And over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, 
that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.